thank you that the Spirit of God is here to feed us, to minister to us, to bless us, to help us. Lord, we need your word like never before. We need the word of God planted in our hearts. We need the word of God to establish us in the faith, particularly in these difficult, dark days. Lord, we need your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Lord, let it be so tonight. Now, breathe a prayer, dear church, and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive with meekness the engrafted word, able to save my soul. Amen. Tell your neighbor, you're going to be blessed tonight and glad you came. Amen. Now, uh, this Sunday, I'm going to have a book signing. I've done three books with Baker Bookhouse, with Chosen Books. And and I want some of you, you're wondering, what can I give somebody that might speak to them, that, that might reach into their life in a way that I can't? You know, I've discovered that Books go where we can't. Books get a person's attention like we can't uh, in the privacy of their room. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a book signing, and I'm going to write a verse down for, and the name of the person you want to give it to for Christmas. I'm going to write their name down and write a verse down. I'm going to write something, whatever God impresses my heart to say to them, and I want you to give it to them, okay? So we're going to do that this Sunday after both services, 9 and the 11, and um, I believe it's going to be a blessing to people under the tree. It'll be something that, uh, that God uses to reach them. Amen? Amen? Now, Ephesians. Let's look. Uh, we're gonna, there's, the verses that we're going to cover tonight, um, we're finishing chapter 5, and then we're going to be in chapter 6 in the warfare chapter, and the chapter most Christians are familiar with. But uh, it covered so many topics in these verses tonight that I just wrote down a couple of them. Walking in the light and wisdom for the home. How many of you wished when you got married you had more wisdom than you did? How many when you started a family, you look back and go, boy, I should have I been trained for that. I mean, we go six weeks in a, uh, uh, to get a, a license to drive, don't we? Six weeks of training to get a license to drive, but we decide to marry somebody with no training whatsoever and jump into a family and don't know what we're doing half the time. We're dumb and dumber, and we learn the hard way. And so you know what the Word of God gives you? Wisdom that you won't have to learn the hard way if you'll read it. All right? So we're going to delve into wisdom for the home, and next week really get into it. It's going to be great. Uh, So last time we explored the three ways that God's wrath is manifested in the world. Now, you do know that God manifests his wrath in this world, don't you? Now, there are people raised in certain types of Christian teaching who are never taught that. The the preacher won't say the word wrath or sin or hell or self-sacrifice or dying daily or picking up your cross. Any of the sacrificial, more difficult stuff, Western preachers are more and more inclined to lay aside. And I think it's to the detriment of their listeners. Okay? It is. Because that's not the Bible. God did not call me to preach my opinion or to soft pedal his word. He called me to preach his word as it is, to people as they are. Okay? So one of the realities of life is that right now as I speak, the wrath of God is being poured out on the world. 
And there's several verses that talk about that, and I encourage you to get last week's tape if you missed that. But we looked at the three ways his wrath is manifested. Then we ended with reading Paul's exhortation in chapter 5, 8 through 14, to walk in the light. Now, if you look at chapter 5 and break it down, it exhorts us as believers to four things. Are you ready? Walk in love, walk in purity, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. We're to walk in the love of God. We're to walk in sexual purity, moral purity. We're to walk in the light of his word, and we're to walk in his wisdom, not the world's wisdom. The world doesn't really have wisdom, okay? Now, this time, we're going to pick it up with the final exhortation to walk in wisdom. Let's talk about that. Look what he says, starting in verse 15 of chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Everybody say the last part with me, redeeming the time. Let's try that again, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Now, these are powerful passages. The word circumspectly means carefully. Now, let me give you an example. You know I can't get out of the light or they lose me on the camera. I'm bound. We need more lighting up here. I'm a pacer. Okay. Now, we used to live in East Texas. And when we moved to East Texas, we found that uh, there were no restaurants in town but a Dairy Queen. And we also learned that where our house was built, it had a lot of snakes. Now, there were two bad boys, moccasins, water moccasins, and copperheads. And we had a lot of them because we had a river, or not a river, but a, a large creek that ran through our property at the bottom of a hill. So there were a lot of moccasins and there were a lot of copperheads. So you know what? When you went out to walk down to that creek, let me tell you what you did not do. You did not walk loosely and carelessly. You walked circumspectly because there was high grass, there were piles of leaves and wood, and there were all kinds of places where these snakes were wont to hide. So you had to walk circumspectly. And if you went out at night, you walked out with a flashlight or you didn't go out. And you walked out with a real flashlight. One of these high beam things that you can see it shooting off into space real clearly because you're walking along and you know that if you don't walk circumspectly and shine that light, his word is a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. So if you didn't use that flashlight, then you were liable to step right on a snake. And they never say hello or oops Believe me, I've been in the hospital with people that got bitten, and you never want to be bitten by a poisonous snake. Bad stuff. You lose limbs. It's bad. Now, this is what he's saying. He says, because the days are evil, walk circumspectly. Now, what's your flashlight? I've already said it. It's the Word of God. It's your flashlight, church. You have got to have that flashlight shining every single day. It says, your word is lamp to my feet a light to my path. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have memorized, I have hidden, I have put your word deep down inside of me because the more word you have in you, the better the flashlight when you walk out into this dark, serpent-infested world. 
The Word will talk to you. The Word will jump up into your mind in the moment of temptation. The Word is your light. And he says, you ought to never go outside, especially at night. And let me inform you, it's night out there. And it's getting darker all the time. And there are serpents everywhere, false teachings, immorality. I mean, you name it, the serpents abound out there. But the child of God who stays in the Word and walks carefully will triumph over the world of flesh and the devil. So we don't go out there without forethought, but according to the wisdom of God's Word. He said, not as unwise, don't go out into the world as unwise, but as wise. And let me tell you, there are unwise Christians. And I'll tell you why they're unwise. They haven't spent time in the Word. And the only person to blame is them. If I don't spend time in the Word, it's my fault. If I do spend the time in the Word, I'm the, I'm the beneficiary of it. So we should all, listen, getting in the Word is not something you pray about. Getting in the Word is what you do for survival. You need that flashlight or you're going to be walking along, church. Everything's going to look great and you're going to be walking along and, and you're not going to see it. It's going to be right there and you're not going to catch it. And you're going to take a step, and before you know it, you're going to be bitten and poisoned. And you're going to look back and say, if only I had had the Word living in my heart. I don't live on yesterday's reading. I read it daily. I have a little saying, no Bible, no breakfast. I, don't, I eat the Word of God before I eat physical food. That will motivate you to get into the Word and, and go ahead and do your reading so you can go eat. And I know I'm a broken record on this, but I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd. And, and I'm supposed to lead you to pastures of tender grass and lead you beside the still waters. That's what a shepherd does. So I'm telling you, we are to walk circumspectly. Didn't mean to spend that long on that, but it's so real. It's so real. Say with me, his word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. And he says, now, I want you to make the most of the time God has given you redeeming the time. That is a very interesting phrase in the original language. Here's what it means. Buying up for yourselves the opportunity. Now, let me explain it. It is redeeming the time is when we buy up for ourselves the God-given opportunities he brings our way. The idea here is of a merchant who, knowing the value of an article and the good use to which he can put it, he buys it up. This is worth seizing, purchasing, obtaining, acquiring. He makes the most of the opportunity to get this product. He's a merchant. Now, what are we to buy up that is so valuable? The opportunities that God gives us to do good. Listen carefully to me. My all-time favorite pastor... He was the one I learned from. He provided for me the first pulpit I ever stood behind. And when I went to pastor my first church, his widow gave me his pulpit. Plexiglass, dove. It had been seen all over the United States of America. And when he died, she gave me this pulpit. And I took it to East Texas for my first pastorate. 
She says, Jeff, you're the closest thing to Howard. Now, I broke the tail off it. When I was preaching so hard one Sunday, I swatted it and I broke the tail off of it. But I super glued it back on. It was very valuable to me. Okay? But see, he found out in his 50s that he didn't have long. And when all, he, he got cancer and, and the whole world prayed for him and he did not get healed. And he was on national television. He was a famous preacher, Howard Knatzer, Sonny Knatzer's daddy. And when he was dying in his bedroom at home, all of his elders came in and he pointed that long bony finger at them and he said, men, whatever you're going to do for Jesus... Do it now. I've never forgotten that. Why did he say that? Here's why. He said, I thought I had so much longer. And now it's over. So whatever I was able to do for Jesus, I did it. But I have no more chances. See, what we all have that is so valuable, that's a gift every day, is time. And we have opportunity. God-given opportunities to do good. They're everywhere. He said, spreading the light, doing good, because the days are evil. Turning Point has the ability right now to do so many different things, and we're, we're maximizing all of it because we know the days are evil, and the day could come one day that our freedom's taken away. Or some other thing happens. And whatever we were able to do, we're not going to have that opportunity again. So he says, buy up, seize the season. Grab hold of it. Because you have today. Tomorrow's gone. There's no guarantee. Or yesterday's gone. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. Go to now, you that say such and such a day, we're going to go into the city and buy and sell and get gain. When you don't know what tomorrow brings, James wrote. What you ought to say is, if the Lord lives, we will, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So he says, redeem the time. Buy up the opportunities you've got right now to do good for Jesus. Because of the prevalence of evil, there's great need for the light of Jesus Christ, who said that we, as his children, were the light of the world. You're the light of the world, salt of the earth. You and I have the light in us, and we're the lights that are in this world. You take the church out, and can you imagine this nation with no church? Look what it is with the church. So redeem the time. Buy up every opportunity. If you can teach, teach. If you can preach, preach. If you can be a life leader, be a life leader. If you can pray, pray. If you can read, read. If you can go across that next-door neighbor and talk to them, go. Buy up every opportunity. Seize the moment. It's also hinted here, I really believe, that the prevalence of evil is very apt to cool the love and diminish the zeal of the believer. It's so easy to go lukewarm, isn't it? It's so easy. This culture just lullabies you to spiritual sleep. It's so easy to grow cool and get lukewarm and lose your fervency. So buy up the opportunity. Stay on track. Don't get off track. 
Don't miss the chances that God brings your way. There is the need for special eagerness in seizing the opportunity to serve God. Let's say what I like to say right here. Are you ready? Seize the season. Let's say it together. Seize the season before it passes you by. Amen. How many of you want to touch this city and this nation and this world for Jesus in 2015? Then come here New Year's Eve. We're going to have Dennis Jernigan. You come New Year's Eve. And our young people are going to be leading us in worship. And then Dennis Jernigan is going to take over. And I believe at the hour of midnight or before, somewhere thereabouts, we're going to get a fresh word from God. And then we're going to go for it. Amen? I like the way the Message Bible puts it, and then we'll move on. Read it with me. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Now, next, the Christian is commanded to avoid drunkenness. Why would he be having to tell Christians not to get drunk? I'll go ahead and say it, because some Christians get drunk. (laughs) Why would he have to say it if they weren't? Now, let's read what he says. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine or anything else. Some of you just said, well, he didn't say bourbon. They didn't have bourbon. They had wine and beer. Can you believe that? That's all they had. I'm going to go there. (laughs) Why some real beer aficionados here? Beer? What kind? Miller? Uh, No. All right. I said, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, our standard, the church's standard, is not what others do. We don't measure ourselves by the world. If we do, we're no church. The church is supposed to be distinctly different and recognizable as being different. We're not called to merge with the world. We're called to stand apart from the world. So we're not to do what others do or do what we can get away with, what we can buy with, just pra- becoming professional at walking around the edges of things. Well, I won't get drunk, but I'll imbibe. Or I, you know, I don't, I don't run with the wrong people all the time, but I do sometimes. We, we walk around the edges. How close can I get? How clo- Instead of saying, how far away can I get? We say, how close can I get? without sinning. How can I kind of sin? Paul's society, as with ours, was filled with drinking and drunkenness, and you know why they were doing it? As an escape from pain. I really do believe that's the reason most people do it. It's pain, and they want to numb the pain. But alcohol and mind-altering drugs, though they may offer a brief escape, will dull your senses. Here's my issue with the alcohol. It dulls your senses so that you can't make the most of every opportunity that he just told us to do. Now, let me, let me just, you, you can chew the meat and spit out the bones. You don't have to agree with me on everything. Now, if I preach the word, you need to agree with that. But if I give me an opinion, you don't have to agree with everything I say, but here's my opinion, that you can't drink half a glass of wine and read the Bible as effectively 
as if you didn't have any because it immediately dulls your senses. That's what alcohol does. You sure can't smoke half a joint and read the Bible. And, and, and I never thought I would have to say that. But if I was in Colorado, I'd be preaching that all the time. Well, you go through Colorado, you need to put on a gas mask and just find your way through. So what I'm saying is, to me, the issue is this. If, if you drink or if, if you're using some kind of narcotic or some kind of drug, it's not that you're doing it, it's why are you doing it? That's the big question. You need to ask yourself, why? Why do I need that? Am I dulling pain that, that I should be giving to God? Am I, you know, what am I escaping from? I know reality's tough sometimes. But here's the deal. If you look for the answer in the bottom of a bottle, there's always the morning after. When you awake with your head pounding and you remember sort of, kind of, maybe not at all, you may wake up and not know how you got there. And immediately, if you do have any memory, it's regrets, it's mistakes, it's sin, it's shame of what you did the night before while under the influence of alcohol or drugs. What I don't like about either one is it takes away your self-control. And, and who wants to be in that position? Because then the enemy can really take advantage of you. Old Billy Sunday, he was a converted baseball player. He was a mass evangelist, and there was D.L. Moody in the 1800s, then Billy Sunday in the early 1900s, and then after Billy Sunday came Billy Graham. So we had three great uh, American evangelists um, that God produced in this country, Moody, Sunday, Graham. Billy Sunday was right in between. He was very demonstrative, very animated. He would preach on one, one leg like he was leaning back and getting ready to pitch a baseball and he was a very, very effective preacher. Um, and he would set up these huge tents with the sawdust trail. But he could preach. And let me tell you what he hated. He hated alcohol. And, and I wish I could read you some of the scathing stuff he said. I do have a couple of examples. Here's what Billy Sunday said of alcohol. Whiskey fills the land with misery and poverty and wretchedness and disease and death and damnation. And at that point, he was just getting started. I'm not, there we go. And then he continued, alcohol is a liar. It promises good cheer and sends sorrow. It promises health and causes disease. It promise, pr promises prosperity and sends adversity. It promises happiness and sends misery. Yes, it sends the husband home with a lie on his lips to his wife and the boy home with a lie on his lips to his mother and it causes the employee to lie to his employer. It degrades. He's not done yet. This is still Billy Sunday. It degrades. It is God's worst enemy and the devil's best friend. It spares neither youth nor old age. And that's Billy Sunday just getting started. And he would go 30 minutes on that. And do you know that when he went into towns, whole they called them saloons back then. Whole saloons were shut down. Now, I'm not condemning anybody in here. I want you to understand me. If you have a drink from time to time, if you're getting drunk, you need help and you need to pull out 
you need to repent. You need to walk away from that before you have a tragedy without a remedy. But if you're drinking every once in a while, I just, I'm just throwing it your way. If you were to take me aside and say, okay, Pastor Jeff, what do you really think about alcohol? I would tell you, if it was just between you and me, I would say, especially if you were a teenager, I would say, if you never touch it, you're not missing one thing. That's what I would say. So you pray about it. Let's go on and see what the Word of God says. Uh, the Proverbs say lots about alcohol. But here's one quick verse. Wine produces mockers. Alcohol leads to fights, brawls. Those led astray by drink cannot be wise. In Paul's day, drunkenness came primarily from wine and beer. They didn't have distilled spirits in those days, nor did they have marijuana, cocaine, heroin, crack, or speed. Or he would have mentioned it. If people say, well, it doesn't mention in the Bible smoking pot. Please. There's a lot of things not mentioned in the Bible. It's understood. Okay? The Bible doesn't say, don't rub poison ivy on your skin. You know better. Come on. Well, if it doesn't say it, then I can do it. Well, it doesn't tell you not to jump off of a 20-story building either. Dodo, come on. Don't get me out of marijuana. Marijuana's terrible, awful stuff. Do you know that every toke off of a marijuana joint, and believe me, I did it a lot when I was a teenager, it, it, it's something like, Smoking a, a, a pack of cigarettes, the, the nicotine, the junk, the tar that goes down into your lungs is, is like you are accelerating what cigarettes will do to you. Amen. Not to mention all the junk they put on that stuff now that is not just the pot. And the question again is, why do you need it? Ask God, why do I need this? They had wine and beer as intoxicants back then, and that's why he talked about it. Now, Christians are admonished to avoid intoxication. Rather, we are to seek another kind of intoxicant, another kind of high. And what is it? The fullness of the Spirit. Now, sometimes people can be so overwhelmed by the presence of the Spirit, they appear intoxicated. Okay? What happened on the day of Pentecost was uh, one of those occasions. Now, let me show it to you. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit enabled them. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up and said, these men aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Which, for some people, that's a great time to start. But then he went on. Now, they were not... They, I want to be clear here, uh, because there are people out there that say things like this, and it bothers me. They'll have meetings in churches and say, let's belly up to the bar and drink of the Holy Spirit. That bothers me. Because to me, that downgrades and, and, and diminishes from the God who gives us his spirit. I think it's disrespectful. And, and if you've got alcoholics out there, former alcoholics who, uh, who, who came out of that and they're struggling to walk right, they don't need to hear verbiage like that concerning God. We don't belly up to some Holy Ghost bar. That bothers me deeply. 
So their, their condition was not degrading or shameful. Their condition was not degrading. Though they thought, well, maybe they're drunk. I think what did it was they were listening to the tongues. And the tongues, they didn't understand, so it sounded like babbling to them. So they said they're drunk. But it was not this out-of-control, shameful, dehumanizing thing that alcohol does to people. I want to be clear about that. I don't believe that. Because God lifts us up and gives us dignity. Alcohol strips dignity and dehumanizes us and puts you in a place that you don't ever want to be back in. Okay? So nevertheless, the the experience was intoxicating in the best sense of the word on the day of Pentecost. They were filled with the love and power of God. It was very emotional, very overwhelming, and exceedingly uplifting. It was an incredible thing. The power of the Holy Spirit is amazing. This is the better thing, the far superior choice. The Greek language reads like this, be being filled. Not just be filled with the Spirit, but be being ongoingly, daily, moment by moment, filled with the Spirit. Let's say that together, be being filled. That means I don't look back 20 years and say, yeah, back then I was really filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, I wish I had that back again now. You should. Thank God for 20 years ago, but what about today? Be being ongoingly, regularly, moment by moment, filled with the Spirit as opposed to being drunk with wine. This is God's answer for the deep hunger of the soul that I believe leads people to drugs and alcohol in the first place. I believe they go to drugs and alcohol looking for what only the Holy Spirit can really give you. I'm convinced of it. When I was a teenager... I think that I was looking for God and didn't know it. And that's why I went into drugs. Looking for some kind of spiritual, supernatural experience. And I just didn't know where to go until I heard the gospel. Amen? Amen. Now, he doesn't leave us there. He gives us three triggers that release this fullness of the Spirit. How many of you would like to know three triggers to release the Spirit of God in your life? Anytime you want to, driving down the highway, when you get up in the morning, here's three triggers. He says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Chapter 5, 19 to 20. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here they are. First, the Spirit's fullness is experienced through how we talk to one another. So he's going to deal with how we talk to each other, how we talk to ourselves, and how we talk to God. All right? Here's the first one. How we talk to one another. Wouldn't it be great to walk into church and never hear any gossip? Come on. Wouldn't it be great? If, if we walk in and we hear gossip, are, are we getting filled with the Spirit? Is that a trigger to be filled with the Holy Spirit? No. That is like punching a hole in the bottom of the boat. But if you want to get filled with the Spirit, you are to talk to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Share the Word with each other. Share the word with each other. I've never been in a church where somebody walked up and sang a song to me. But you know what? I'd rather somebody sing a spiritual song to me than drop some gossip on me. Okay? So that's how you speak to one another if you want to trigger the fullness of the Spirit. Watch what you say to others. Second, what do you say to yourself? 
Sing and make music in your own heart to the Lord. That's what it says to do. That's what, how you talk to yourself. Do you know that you talk to you more than you talk to any person on earth? You fellowship with you more than you do any person on earth. And do you know how important it is what you say to yourself throughout the day? Oh, I'm a loser. I'm a no good. I've messed up. God's not with me. I can't do anything right. Get off of that. He says, he says, instead, talk to yourself by making up music in your own heart to the Lord. Don't have to be in church to do it. Make up a song. You can do it. And then third, he says, God word. Always be thankful. Be a thanker of God. Think to thank him. You know, it's, it's so easy for us to be unthankful, ungrateful, and murmur and complain and, and gripe and all the things that Israel did that kept them, literally kept them from going into the promised land. Amen. But God says to you and to me, he said, if you want a, a trigger that will release the fullness of the Holy Spirit in you anytime, day or night, then thank the Lord. Yeah. Think to thank. Can we say together, think to thank? Think to thank. Think to thank. Think to thank. Be a thanker of God. Always be thankful. Think of something you can thank him for and thank him. And, and thank him more. If you can't think of anything, thank him that you're saved. Thank him that once you were lost, now you're found. Once you were blind, now you see. Once you were headed for hell, now you're headed for heaven. If you can't think of another thing, think to thank him for that. Start there and you'll have church wherever you are. It's a trigger. It releases the Spirit of God inside of you. So great instruction. What we say to one another, what we say to ourselves, what we say to God. Now, these are the buckets that we Christians can let down into the well of our salvation. And by so doing, release within us the water of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said will spring up into everlasting life. Amen. Now, this next section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians deals with proper relationships between people, what German scholars call a Hausstaffel, means a table of household duties. In the next few verses, he's going to deal with this. These are all relationships. Now, notice he took care of us this way. Now he's taking care of us this way. All right? Now he's going to tell us how to get along with one another. Let me ask a question. How many of you have had a disagreement with somebody in the last year? How many of you can say, Pastor, I've been lying like this for a long time? Because some of you didn't raise your hand, and I know that's a lie. <laughs> if you haven't had a disagreement with anybody in the last year, you get up here, and I'm going to sit down. <laughs> See, he, we have got to get along with one another in the church. So he says, I'm going to deal with wives to their husbands, husbands to their wives, children to parents, fathers to children, servants to masters, and masters to servants. Now, it's easy for us today, before we jump into this, to slam Paul, and he gets slammed all the time, because he doesn't agree with modern ideas of political correctness and feminism. He is very unpolitically correct and very anti-feminism. Because feminism was never about equal pay for equal job, never. Feminism was an attack against God's delegated authority. Feminism was an attack 
against God's established order. Feminism was very spiritual, but not from him. Now, for instance, he encourages slaves to obey their masters. Well, wait a minute. How could Paul expect us to take him seriously if he says that slaves should obey their masters? We need to realize something. Paul lived in a day when Christianity was just seeking to become established in the Mediterranean world. It was a brand new faith with brand new doctrine. And Christians were already considered atheists because they refused to worship the Roman and Greek deities. Rome was polytheistic. Rome worshipped all kinds of different gods. And when they refused to do that, can you believe the Christians were called atheists because they wouldn't worship their gods? If Paul had encouraged the women to exercise their freedom like feminists teach and the slaves to rebel against their masters, all the truths of Christianity would have been eclipsed by social and political chaos. And the new faith would have been utterly crushed. Christians would have been called troublemakers and the new faith wouldn't have gotten down the street. So he begins with the dreaded six-letter word. Everybody say it with me. Submit. Everybody go, oh, because so many people don't like that word. Let me read a verse that I could never read on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, or MSNBC. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you know that word submit is very, very misunderstood? Here's what it means. It means to subordinate yourself to voluntarily. Everybody say voluntarily. So it's not coerced, not forced to voluntarily place oneself under another's authority. That's submit. It is not the same word as obey. It's not the same as obedience. It is not telling us to obey whatever an authority figure tells us to do. That is not submit. For instance, you remember the story in response to the civil authorities who commanded the disciples, don't you speak anymore in the name of Jesus? And they replied, we must obey God rather than man. Now watch this. Listen to me carefully. I submit to you that you can have an attitude of submission and not obey. These disciples were not social anarchists. They weren't out trying to get riots in the streets. They were representatives of Jesus Christ, so they had an attitude of submission to the government, but when the government told them to do something against God, though they had an attitude of submission, they refused to obey. And that's what we're called to have, an attitude of submission to God's authorities but if the authorities tell us to do something that is a sin against God, we must obey God rather than men. And that's when persecution starts. In this chapter, children, for instance, are told, obey your parents. Slaves are told, obey your masters. But wives are told to submit to their husbands. He doesn't use the word obey. There is a difference between the two. Submission has nothing to do, I want you to catch this, with the inherent worth or value of an individual. If you're called to submit to somebody, 
It doesn't mean you're lesser than, not as valuable as, that they are superior to you. To honor authority, church, is to honor the God behind the authority. For Romans tells us all authority comes from God. So it doesn't have anything to do with, well, the person I'm, you know, my boss is better than me, superior to me, and I'm just this, you know, I'm lesser than, have less value than. No, no, no. No, that's not what the Bible says. Paul says we all have equal value and standing before God. He says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all, what everyone, one in Christ. We all are equal in value at the foot of the cross. Peter teaches that wives and husbands are joint heirs of the grace of life. But to teach that equal value means equal authority is foolish. Now I'm going to say that again. To teach that equal value means that everybody has equal authority is foolish and untrue and that's what breaks a society down and leads to anarchy. We are called to recognize authority and submit to it. But when that authority asks us to obey in something that's not godly, we have all the liberty in the world to say no. Even in the most egalitarian, that means where everybody's equal, even in the most egalitarian of societies, we have authority relationships that must be honored to promote good order. The principle of authority is timeless. It spans the centuries from Paul's time to ours. Authority. It's real. When a society and its laws are built on the principle of authority, here's what you have. Peace and health reign. But when a home or society reject the principle of authority... Guarantee you, anarchy, chaos, and collapse rule the day. That's why I'm so concerned about our current culture, where there's, there's this movement. I want to be careful here, but there is a movement to disrespect all law authority. And when you go there, I smell a rotten fish. Because when it's a total attack against all authority, then that culture is headed to chaos and anarchy. So we might say that the attitude of submission is absolute, while obedience is relative to whether or not we're being required to sin against God. Now remember, I'm going to the husband and wife relationship here and parents and children. So we're going somewhere with this. I'm laying a foundation Submission is absolute. The attitude of submission. I honor God's authority everywhere I see it. But obedience is relative to what that authority is asking me to do. If, if the authorities came in here tonight and said, Wickwire, you and this church, you got to quit teaching this Bible. Because we've decided that's a hate book. And since we've decided that it's a hate book, we're shutting that thing down. You can get up there and say nice things if you want to, but you, there are certain parts of that Bible you can't preach anymore. Well, would I be between a rock and a hard place? You know what I would have to do? And I trust that God would grace me to do it. And I trust you would come and let me do it. I would have to preach that word that they told me not to because I've got to obey God rather than men. So 
but I, I wouldn't run out and try to organize riots against them. I would just say, you know what? I submit to your authority with an attitude of submission, but I can't obey the authority because you're asking me to sin against God. Are y'all with me now? Are you getting this? Okay? Because, again, we're going to the home with this. Wives to husbands, children to parents. Now, with that in mind, Paul launches into the family, starting with husband and wife, and looking at the time, I'm going to let it go right there. Because we're going to get into where many of you are going to be so thankful you're not me next week. Because I get to teach this and you get to listen. But I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to get into the family, and let me tell you what it's going to do. It's, gonna, it's going to so help some of you Amen. to understand what God has called us to in marriage and in the home and in the family, because it's totally clear, all right? Can we stand together tonight? Amen. Isn't this good tonight? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's lift our hands to him and just say, Lord, thank you so much. Give me a submissive heart to authority, not a rebel's heart, but also give me the strength to stand with you when authority requires me to sin. And with our heads bowed for a moment, if you're here tonight and you say, you know, Pastor, I do struggle with intoxicants. I know what it is to turn to alcohol, to numb pain. And I also know what it is for God to say, I want you to lay that down. And I know when you lay it down, he will heal your pain instead of masking it. So if you're struggling with a drug or alcohol, and we sang at the beginning of this, I surrender all, could you trust God to grace you tonight to lay that down and let him heal your pain? Take a minute. And just pray to him. He's here. Say, Lord, help me. I don't want to mask it anymore, numb it anymore. I don't want to be enslaved to an intoxicant. I want to be free indeed. And if you've been missing those times with God in the morning and your flashlight has grown dull, why not take a minute and say, Lord, I commit getting up with you in the morning and, spend, and, and setting aside enough time to get my flashlight bright so I can walk wisely in this world. Lead us, Pastor Keith, and just I surrender all, and you pray.